He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, March 4, 2023. Episode 138 is great. It features another great podcast, Alphabet Boys, by star podcast producer, journalist extraordinaire, and performer Trevor Aronson. Alphabet Boys, available on all your podcast venues. Same place you get my show, but it is an episodic show. We are breaking our Denver mayoral run for this important podcast about a Colorado story, a Denver, Colorado story. It takes place in our justice system, and it involves infiltration of anti-police groups, black activist groups, legitimate protest groups, by law enforcement informants who are not good people. At the end of the interview, we will have a great discussion with our troubadour, Dave Gunders. This is where we talk about current events and his song, Perfect for episode 138, about the Alphabet Boys and somebody under cover, deep cover. Well, this guy, Mickey, his cover was not that deep, But we go deep with Dave Gunder's Troubadour song, Deep Down. And we had a little fight this week. You are going to hear about that. There was a fight in a courtroom as well as South Carolina. Not much of one, really, because Alec Murdoch, he was a lying scumbag double murderer. And I tweeted about him being convicted, and I wrote about it in my Colorado Sun column, which is about perjury. I welcome you to read that every two weeks. I write for the Colorado Sun. I am their columnist at large. Trevor Aronson and Alphabet Boys shows you what you can do with great audio-only podcasts. Listen to the man behind it, this great Colorado justice story I give you after the break. Trevor Aronson. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) 
Now, part of that was serious and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday. And if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156, I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey Trevor, thank you for doing the podcast, and most of all for giving me a solid week of entertainment via your podcast Alphabet Boys, more specifically, Trojan Hearse. Ten episodes, thank you. And I've heard you do other podcasts. I've researched you as much as possible. And I know you are a podcast pro. You also wrote a book, right? The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. I apologize that I did not read that. Tell us about that book. Yeah, so um, the the Terror Factory is about the FBI's counterterrorism program um, in the post nine eleven era, and and what I looked at in that was how the FBI had recruited you know a vast number of informants, more than fifteen thousand informants, the most in its history, and was using informants to um, essentially, uh, in the FBI's view, find terror threats before they cross that line from sympathizer to operator. Um, but in the vast majority of cases, the FBI. Um, was essentially, you know, entrapping young, impressionable Muslims in plots that by their own, they had no capacity to commit. So for example, you know, often cases, the targets of these plots would be uh, mentally ill or financially desperate. And an FBI informant incentivized by a lot of money would then offer them the opportunity to commit the crime, all of facilitating transportation, making the plot possible, and then at the very end, providing a weapon, like a fake bomb, for example. And then when the the target of the sting takes it takes custody of the bomb. They're arrested. It's announced to the public a terrorism plot foiled. But there are serious questions about how whether that person would have been a threat were it not for the FBI making everything possible. And as you can see, there's obviously allusions to like what happens in Denver that we discuss in Alphabet Boys, and that the same type of powers and strategies that the FBI uh, really perfected and attained during the war on terror you know, was, was used and applied against um, protesters in Denver. That's why I love your podcast, because it's based here in Colorado, Denver and Chapter 8, Colorado Springs, two towns I know fairly well, Denver a lot better than Colorado Springs, but I'm familiar with Colorado Springs Antifa because they exposed my old producer as a neo-Nazi. And I know, oh my goodness, the stories you are (laughs) going to learn in our conversation. But I don't want to leave your prior work, and I think we have plenty of time, I hope so, because people are going to love Alphabet Boys, and the star of it is 
well, Mickey, but really the star is a guy named Trevor Aronson, and I'm talking to him now. So I want to learn more about you and, and this book. Did you write about any terror cases flowing out of Colorado? No, so I mean, you know, the the Najibola Zazi case is one of the yes, more serious cases. That's yeah, what and I was going he, after. Yeah, yeah, he he was obviously based in in Colorado. I do talk about his case in the book, um, although it's it's meant as as a kind of comparison because you know if you look at the the two decades after nine eleven, there there were certainly dangerous terrorism plots that had 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 come to be, and Najibola Zazi's was one of them, where you know he had he had basically put together these chemical bombs in Colorado driven across the country with a plan of detonating them with backpack, in backpacks in the New York City subway system. And they, they, NYPD, working with the FBI, fortunately, was able to stop him. He got very close, but they were able to stop him nonetheless. And, and his was an example of, of, a, of a dangerous person that, that fortunately, law enforcement was able to uh, stop from committing his, this awful act of terrorism that he planned. Uh, but, you know, and we, we kind of compare that one, or I compare that one in the terror factory to, you know, many, many other cases where the person never had the capacity, didn't have the training that Najib Azazi did, didn't have the capacity to commit the crime, and yet they kind of wrapped them together in that, in that kind of plot. See, I wondered if he was a dupe or if he had the capacity, and you are saying he did. Didn't he buy all those chemicals that was at a, a beauty supply shop at Colfax and I-225? I think about it every time I drive by there when you're coming home from the airport. So, uh, you know, he was an airport driver. But you think he really had the capacity to kill a lot of people in the Big Apple? You know, in his particular case, he obtained the chemicals that he needed to put these bombs together. And he appeared, from from what I understand, to have the recipe to do that. And then he had, had done that and planned to put them in backpacks. Whether those bombs would have detonated... I don't know that we know that, mm-hmm. um, but you know that said, he he clearly showed a greater amount of capacity for for terrorism and an attack than most of the people that the FBI catches in these sting operations. And in you, in most cases, in the sting operations, the FBI is providing the weapon altogether. That the the, the target of the sting normally doesn't have any sort of weapon on their own, and often cases don't even have money on their own. It's the FBI that provides it. But in Najib Azazi's case. You know, in the if you're looking at the the potential for capacity, you know he was able to obtain the ingredients he needed for the bomb. Was able to drive himself from Colorado to New York, so it's possible. You know, we don't know what we don't know, but I think you know from I, I think I think it was Eric Holder, the former Attorney General, who had described Najib Azazi as being the most significant threat since 9/11. Whether that's true or not, you know, it's hard to know, but he definitely did have. But based on the evidence, somewhat of a capacity, certainly far more than than the guys caught in terrorism stings. I don't know if you use artificial intelligence yet, but I went on chat GPT and I said, where is Najibullah Zazi now? And it said he got released in 2019 and he worked as an informant. Is that true? Do you know? That is true. So, so Najibullah Zazi was a cooperating witness and provided testimony and information in other prosecutions. Um, and this is actually, I, I wrote an Intercept article for this a few years back, which is, you know, uh, was, was comparing, you know, the very dang- the, the potentially dangerous terrorists who were arrested, they often get um, leniency because, in, as in Najib Azazi's case, he provided information as a cooperating witness. And so the prosecutors and the judge gave him leniency in his case, and he's since been released. The, but contrast that with people who are caught up in these, these terrorism sting operations, 
where they don't have any any contacts with actual terrorists. They they don't have weapons of their own, and so when they're prosecuted, they have nothing to give up, right? They 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 can't turn on someone else because they don't know any real terrorists, and so it creates this very um, cruel irony that the more dangerous you are, the more connections you have to real terrorists, the more likely you can cut a deal that gets you leniency. Whereas if you're just a dupe who's kind of caught up in one of these sting operations, you don't really have anything to offer the government. And so in that in those cases, those people, you know, spend their, you know, full they 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 serve their full sentences. And so someone like Najibul Azazi spends a few years and is out. Uh, whether he was even in a prison is a question. Whether he was kind of in custody of the feds, I, he he never was put into the custody of the Bureau of Prisons, as far as I know. Whereas people who you know were caught up in these stings are serving you know anywhere from eight to twenty to th- twenty years to even life in a few cases. Right. Oi. You know the two biggest words in the world, and I was one for sixteen years. Prosecutorial discretion, and there's a lot of that. And you are a foremost expert on excesses by people with power using informants. It's a delicate topic, but honestly, you are great at podcasting. So can I first find out a little more about you before we dive into the Denver story? Sure. Yeah, of course. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Yeah, so so I, I grew up in Florida. Um, I actually returned to this area about 10 years ago. Uh, I grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I started my uh, journalism career in Florida. I worked for uh, the group of uh, New Times papers in South Florida, Miami New Times and New Times Brown Palm Beach, which are actually sister papers of Westward in, in Denver. Um, and so I, I it was there in my early 20s that I, I really... Um, you know, got into long-form journalism, long-form investigative reporting. And even back then, a focus of my work was the misuse of informants. You know, in, in South Florida in the early 2000s when I was there, um, it, drug cases were very common. And among the most, you know, commonly used tools of drug cases it, is the use of informants. Um, and so I, I started looking into, you know, the egregious use of informants, the bad use of informants at times. And, you know, to be honest, that's kind of the, you know, the subject that's kind of driven a lot of my work going forward over the last 20 years. So many great journalists have come through Westward. So we know that kind of tradition. And uh, then you went on to The Intercept. And that's an interesting organization. Tell us about that and any stops in between. Yeah. So I, I um, prior to, to working at The Intercept, I was a, um, a fellow at the University of California, Berkeley's investigative reporting program. And that's when I started reporting on the FBI's use of informants um, and sting operations. So uh, uh, a lot of the research in my book, The Terror Factory, is based on, um, you know, my work as a a UC Berkeley investigative reporting fellow. Um, And then eventually, shortly after The Intercept started, um, I started working with them. I guess this takes us back to like 2015 or so. Um, And, you know, The Intercept was a place that had an appetite for the type of work I wanted to do, maybe more than other places, in that there was a you know, there was a great interest editorially in, you know, the 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 conflict between national security and civil liberties. Um, and, and it's kind of in where those two things meet is really where a lot of the stories I try to report on are. And so, uh, you know, I, I've been reporting on the FBI and the Justice Department and the problems there since, you know, the early 2010s and going through 2015. I, I sometimes joke, like, 
you know, in the Trump era, it became very popular to report on the FBI. And I have to joke with friends that I was I was doing this long before it was popular. You know, like the, the, the agency, when I first started reporting on it, was obviously one of great interest, but did not have the, the number of reporters really digging in there as, as, as you do now. So, wow, The Intercept. I know it from that guy, Glenn Greenwald. Is that a good association or a bad association for you guys? I would say it's complicated, you know, so I, I never, so there's a perception at The Intercept that Glenn Greenwald was the editor. I think a lot of people have that mis- misconception. I mean, Glenn was one of the founding editors and founders of the organization, um, but never was involved in editorial management. As far as I know, he wasn't involved in editing my work in, in any way. Um, you know, and I think Glenn is a complicated person. I think, you know, here's a person who, uh, you know, had made enormous change through his journalism, not only in the United States, but in Brazil and elsewhere. Um, and so I think you can't take that away from him. Um, you know, he left The Intercept under very controversial terms uh, and has since, you know, made a name for himself, I think, uh, gravitating toward the right, which I think he would probably disagree with that characterization. Uh, but, you know, he's he's a common, you know, he's a frequent commentator on Fox News. Um, and so he, he hasn't been associated with The Intercept for, for quite some time. So I think, you know, there, were, there definitely was a, you know, a divergent path between him and The Intercept. It makes me doubly sick when I monitor Tucker Carlson, and there he is spewing disinformation. I don't know what he was at the outset, but I know what he's become. And uh, the Trump era reveals a lot of people, right, for good, for bad. And that guy, uh, to me, he's dangerous with the things he says, right? Didn't he help that revolt in uh, Brazil as well? Doesn't he back the big lie? I don't know that. I don't know that Glenn has specifically backed the stolen election conspiracies. Um, I, but to be honest, I, I don't pay as much attention to him as, as others. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I can't really speak and, to that. And I'm yeah. no expert on him either. Yeah, and yeah. God knows I've been at organizations with people later exposed to be, wow, are you kidding me? Just like that guy I talked about, my producer, they are amongst us. And do you agree that MAGA has revealed a lot of people in ways you didn't expect? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I, I think you can even look at, you were mentioning Tucker Carlson, right? Like, this is a right. show that that over, that night after night, he is, you know, spewing kind of even like white nationalist talking points, you know, the entertaining, I mean, Fox News entertaining ideas like Marjorie Taylor Greene's like, you know, dissolution of the United States into red and blue countries. I mean, that this is even something that these media organizations talk about is just despicable. Uh, so yeah, I agree. I mean, I think in some ways we've become, obviously, I'm stating the obvious, but, you know, we've become far more polarized. But I think, you know, I, I think there has been a turn in media where media organizations are far less responsible than they than they should be. But Trevor, don't we know the motivation of Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, the primetime stars? They told the truth in their text messages, and the only reason they got upset was the truth was being told, and it was going to affect ratings, revenue, and people do wild things for money, and that seems to be, you know, it's one of the oldest things in the world. It's the heart of your story, Alphabet Boys, what Mickey did for money. There's just a lot more money. It's prestige. And Tucker Carlson has sold out for money. He he said that Trump's a destroyer. He just doesn't want to be destroyed. He didn't want to see his audience destroyed. And I, I don't know Glenn Greenwald, but anybody who's mega, 
I think they're either evil or racist, or maybe Glenn Greenwald just has found a way to make money. So I'll let you bounce off of that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of grift in in right wing media in, in general. Um, you know, I think you know when I watch Fox News, especially in like the which I which I admit I don't very often, but I, when I see clips of it uh, with like Laura Ingram or Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity, I mean, it always strikes me that they are not being genuine. They're playing some character. Uh, they're playing mm-hmm. some character that gets ratings, that gets money, and right. I, I sometimes wonder if like what they're saying they even believe, right? Which we now know, as you mentioned, that they did not believe the stolen election conspiracies, but they continued to go on air night after night, pushing forward this idea as if they did. So, you know, these are these are people that are really playing characters in primetime TV. Unfortunately, though, you know what? They have the largest cable news audience in the United States. It's, you know, it's a scary thing. Right. And I saw one of the last Trump defense secretaries, Chris Miller, go on his show, and he ended a softball interview by saying, Thank you, Tucker, for your wonderful journalism. <laughs> Thinking, <laughs> wow. Now, I consider you a journalist, and you are not just out there to get the truth, but you are putting your own ass on the line. You are gutsy as hell. And where'd you uh, learn your journalistic props? At New Times, I guess. Uh, who are your role models in this enterprise of yours? It, it, my role models in journalism? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, one of my role models, which I had the 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 uh, great opportunity to work with, is, is Lowell Bergman, the former CBS producer whose work uh, was dramatized in the movie The Insider. Uh, so as a, as a University of California investigative reporting fellow, I worked with Lowell. Um, I think he's, you know, he does remarkable work. I think, you know, as, as a young journalist kind of coming up, uh, you know, I looked at him and the stuff he was doing, and that was like a you know, one of the reasons that I thought, like, I, I, I want to do this, right? This idea that, you know, you can not only hold the powerful accountable and, um, you know, report good stories, but that these stories need to be compelling and, and, you know, need to be told in a way that people will enjoy consuming them, right? And I think, you know, a big part of my work is finding that balance, right? Marrying uh, kind of traditional investigative reporting with storytelling in a way that, you know, people who might not necessarily be interested in the subject I'm discussing may be drawn into the story and so they can get into the subject as a result. Just sort of as an aside, how long did you work for New Times? I think it was about four years. It was, I think right. it was two, yeah. And I imagine they have an audience of primarily younger people, people who would tend to be more liberal than conservative. It has a certain audience, right? And 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 so I'm just wondering, you know, you as a journalist, the pressure to conform what you write to the expectations and the desires of your audience. Have you ever felt that? Or if you feel it, you say, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to write what I want. Yeah, I, definitely the latter. You know, I've never felt a need to conform to the audience. If, if anything, I, I think as a journalist, sometimes you want to challenge your audience. And, you know, in general, you, you know, you can point to, the Intercept or New Times or places that I've worked and they tend to have a more liberal audience um, than other places. But I've never really fashioned myself any particular, you know, persuasion of journalist, liberal, conservative. I mean, to me, you know, journalism should be about, you know, telling stories and, and revealing the truth and kind of the old idea of kind of holding the powerful accountable. And so, you know, I've, I've never had an interest in doing stories that my audience will just say, 
oh yeah, yeah, I totally agree with all that, right? I think you want to tell good stories, but then you also want to challenge your audience in general. Definitely. And the first challenge to the Alphabet Boys, and that's uh, your podcast, and it's the name for like the FBI, CIA, other federal organizations. I was in college. I'm quite a bit older than you, and my first time going to a primary down in Colorado Springs while I'm attending Colorado College, I decided to caucus for a guy named Frank Church, who was running for president after his fame gathered uh, with the Church Commission, which dealt with the excesses of the Alphabet Boys. And I like that you start way back then. Why did you do so? Yeah, so I think, you know, what we're trying to show in Alphabet Boys, and I think what we do show is that the FBI had used this informant to infiltrate the racial justice movement. But it was really important to understand the context of that and why, you know, on its own, that would be outrageous. But it's even more outrageous when you understand the context, which is that the FBI had done this exact th- exact thing in the 1960s, and which was which was part of the COINTEL Pro program that the Church Committee looked at and found that many of its uh, methods and uh, and programs were in fact illegal. And so, you know, back in the 60s, you know, Frank Church's committee revealed that the FBI had used informants to undermine black political organizations like the Panthers, um, Native American organizations, anti-war organizations, even Dr. Martin Luther King's organization, and that would then, they would try to set people up in crimes. And then kind of the most devastating effect was the use of so-called snitch jacketing, where an FBI informant would go into a group like the Panthers, for example, and accuse the leaders and the activists in that group of being informants. And that sowed mistrust and created discord that ultimately undermined the movement. And what we saw in Denver, remarkably, was the same thing happened in the summer of 2020, where an FBI informant infiltrated these groups, became a leader among these groups, and then started accusing others of being informants, sowing confusion and distrust. And according to many activists in Denver, ultimately helping to undermine the movement that summer. What a Colorado story it is. Did you have much familiarity with Colorado before that? Have you been here much? I'd been there once before, and I, I can't. I have to admit, I was not. You know, I was by no means an expert in Colorado. I think I, I think I became you know more knowledgeable after spending so much time there reporting in Denver and Colorado Springs. Uh, but this was my first real dive into into Colorado. How long did it take you to put together this remarkable podcast? So, so from the time I, I received the initial, so the the batch of, let me back up. The the batch of material that we started with was about three hundred pages of internal reports and about a dozen hours of undercover recordings, which were the recordings that Mickey Windecker had wore, uh, or, or had recorded when he was when he was working as an undercover informant. And so we started with that material. I obtained that about, um, I would say, about fourteen months ago from today, and. I then spent the next year, you know, reporting this out, interviewing as many people as I could around the the FBI's investigation. And then obviously with a podcast, there's a fair amount of post-production time where, you know, you're writing scripts and you're doing the narration and then it goes through a sound design process and a fact-checking process. So it's pretty intense. So so from but from start to finish it was about a year's time. Not for my kind of podcast. You better check your own facts before you say them. No, I'm just kidding. It's a different (laughs) kind of podcasting. Yours is episodic. Mine is more current events. And I'm telling everybody, catch up with Alphabet Boys. It's like 
Rachel Maddow, only it's set in Colorado, and it's stuff that I didn't know, and I'm in touch with the criminal justice system, and I've followed all these events, but I learned a lot because you got what is key to podcasting, and we're not doing a video, and I like it better this way. I like just sound, and boy, do you have great sound. So somebody uh, supplied you at the end. I'm not going to try to dive into your source because you want to keep it confidential, but is this something that feeds on itself? Do you solicit this kind of information because you are the guy who exposes the FBI? So it cuts both ways, really. So I think one of the benefits of of focusing on the FBI for, you know, 15 years or more is that I've built a reputation as someone who reports on these issues. So uh, as a result of that, I think people are more likely to come to me just because they've seen other stories I've done. And so that's really helpful. But then the other part of it is, like, I, I'm constantly trying to build relationships within the FBI. I think it's important to understand that the FBI isn't monolithic. There are certainly many agents in the FBI who feel that at times the FBI isn't doing the right thing and will sometimes work with journalists like me to help reveal those things in order to you know, provide some sort of reform or change the system in some way. For me, in this particular case, having covered the FBI's counterterrorism program since uh, you know the late 2000s, um, I, I really remember being at home in the summer of 2020 you know, seeing what every other American saw, right? These like this, these demonstrations on their on your screens. Uh, some of these demonstrations turning destructive, and and I remember thinking at the time that, you know, I suspected that the FBI may choose to take some of the same tactics and powers that it had used in the war on terror and apply it to um, these these uh, racial justice activists. And and the reason for that was that three years earlier, at the beginning of the Trump administration. The FBI had defined this this form of black activism as what they called black identity extremism, and this this whole idea rested on a very thin amount of evidence. But the the FBI's theory was that after Ferguson, when we had the, some of the initial um, demonstrations during the Black Lives Matter movement after Ferguson, that black activists had become more radical and more likely to to engage in violence. And again, and, and, was, and just I want to slip sure. this in. And who really pushed that agenda more than anybody? That Black Lives Matter was a terrorist organization, right? Th- this was the Trump administration and Trump himself. And, and, but and, it was Fox News. Too. Fox News, right? You know, yeah, Fo- Fox News kept that one uh, scraggly group of marchers talking about flip them like pancakes or fry them with bacon. Whatever, it was bad, but it was just run in a loop, and you could see the poisoning. So keep going, because I, I'm just disgusted by Tucker Carlson, Fox News, and Megas. So please keep going. Yeah, no, I'm so 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 coming out of the you know coming into the summer of 2020, the FBI had defined this kind of idea of black identity extremism, and then as the demonstrations start, you really see Donald Trump, you know, talking about how. Black Lives Matter demonstrators are potentially violent and making a big deal about this idea of anti-fascist activists or sometimes called Antifa activists. And as you may recall, Donald Trump had floated the idea of of designating Antifa a terrorist organization, which doesn't make any sense because it's not even really an organization and it's also not a foreign organization, even if it was one. It just makes no sense. But you saw that kind of message being echoed on Fox News and and other right-wing media, this idea that you know, Antifa activists are dangerous and they're going to burn your cities down. And so when these demonstrations happen, 
this isn't just people protesting police brutality against black people. This is something far more sinister. This is this is like, you know, Antifa activists, potential terrorists wanting to do harm to you and your your city. And that's really the message that, you know, permeated and was a narrative that that took hold in the summer and, of 2020. And, right. But hadn't they laid a base for that uh, at least three or four years prior? I mean, the first year of Trump, frankly, America was doing OK. And then uh, it was actually July 28, 2017, that he went to a police academy in New York. And remember, he said, don't be too nice to people. You know, and he said, if you bump their head, that's okay. Everybody laughed. And then Charlottesville happened shortly after that. And I I just saw the police and the, and the constant refrain about Antifa. And one of the most thought-provoking things for me listening to your podcast, and I'll ask you right now, is there Antifa? Is it a bunch of MAGA bullshit like uh, the big lie? Just uh, a boogeyman for them to do their authoritarian shit against? I mean, there are obviously anti-fascist activists or people who identify as anti-fascist activists. They right. sometimes use the term Antifa. Antifa tends to be a word that's kind of like woke, that's used by the by the right wing far more than anyone else. And and so, you know, but yes, I mean, there are people who identify as anti-fascist activists, but anti-fascist activists, th there's no central organization. They're not that prevalent. You know, most of the racial justice demonstrations involve people who were not even, who did not even consider themselves anti-fascist activists, but came out to demonstrate for, um, against police brutality and for right. reforms to police. And so it became this boogeyman that, the Trump and the right wing media really put up this idea that Antifa is out there. And it's it's a ridiculous idea, right? Because the truth is that there would be no anti-fascist activists if there weren't people pushing fascist political agendas, right? Like maybe you get rid of maybe. one. I mean, I, I think about, you know, 30 years ago, window breaking in Seattle. I don't know what's really going on in Seattle or Portland, but I do know about Denver and a little about Colorado Springs, and I guess there really is Colorado Springs Antifa, and I haven't seen any evidence of them being violent, but they have pulled the pants down on a lot of people, and you talked to them as part of your podcast. So I guess, what do we say? Antifa exists because fascists exist, and and anyway, I, I what about the deeps? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Keep no, going I, I would, on I would, Antifa. Yeah, I, I would also clarify, you know, I think a lot of times just, you know, vandalism and acts of destruction get blamed on Antifa because it's such a nebulous idea. And so in some of these cases, in some of these cities, you had kind of self-described anarchists who would come in and just sow confusion and destruction just because they wanted to, right? They had no real political agenda. They were just there to, right. you know, cause chaos amid the chaos. And, and that often got blamed on Antifa. And so I think, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, Antifa was too often an easy place to, put, to pin the blame, right? Like someone came in and broke windows, must have been Antifa. But there isn't a whole lot of evidence that Antifa activists were intentionally trying to cause vandalism or destruction. That's It was more right-wing media blaming specific incidents and often isolated incidents of vandalism and destruction on Antifa as the broader concept. And that is, that wasn't always necessarily true or supported by any sort of discernible facts. Well, with respect to the events you describe in Colorado, we all watch them on local TV, but I had a vantage point 
in a top floor at 1600 Broadway because that's where I was working as a lawyer at the time, right near the Capitol. And I'd never seen events like that. Then District 1, where there were standoffs, that's part of your podcast. Out in Aurora, we're all very familiar with that area. And one thing that involved maybe Antifa, that involved the death of a pro-Trump guy near Civic Center Park, and you write you your podcast addresses Michelle Malkin a little bit. Did you hear about that Patriot rally and uh, the man getting shot by a Channel 9 security guard? Eventually, the case was dismissed after murder charges, but that was really some serious violence right around that time frame. For sure. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you remember, you probably do, I, um, that initially the reports were that the security guard was Antifa, right? There was this quick quick uh, attempt to kind of blame at that time. But I mean, that that is the kind of the problem with these demonstrations in general, right? There There is a concern that they can turn combustible. Um, you know, and what was interesting for me in the context of Alphabet Boys was that Denver was one of those cities that saw some of the most intense protests that year. Um, and I think the incident you describe is reflective of that, that there there clearly was a level of tension in Denver that exceeded what we saw in many other cities that summer. Well, let's get into part of the reason why a guy named Mickey, and you've identified him, give his full name because you aren't afraid of him. I think I kind of am after listening to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, so his name is uh, Michael Adam Windecker II, but he, he goes by by Mickey and Mickey, you know, we get into his whole history in, in Alphabet Boys. And, and Mickey, you know, has a long history of violence and deception. He has a criminal rap sheet, including for sexual assault and menacing with a weapon. And he spent two years in a Colorado prison in the early 2000s. And what we were able to show uh, was that, that, you know, from records that came from these FBI files, Mickey, in the early 2000s, was imprisoned for following a felony uh, menacing with a weapon charge or conviction, and is recruited by a couple of other inmates to get involved in a murder for hire. He chooses not to do that and instead flips and provides information to prosecute the people who try to uh, hire him for the murder. And that's the earliest example we have of Mickey realizing that having information is something that's valuable, that you can get a benefit from to be a cooperating witness or an informant. And, you know, going forward, Mickey has this strange history. He volunteered as a fighter with the Peshmerga in Iraq, uh, fighting the Islamic State, never seemed to have any kind of steady job in the United States. And we were able to find evidence of him continuing to cooperate with police in the Denver area, presumably as an informant, presumably to find to make money. As just one example we, we provide in the show, you know, in 2017, he assaults his third ex-wife uh, by allegedly grabbing her by the neck and slamming her on a table, is arrested for that. And then, according to the police body camera we were, footage we were able to obtain, Mickey then offers information about a murder and then miraculously is not charged in the, in the, in the domestic case with, it, with his ex-wife. And then three years later, Mickey is seeing the unrest during the summer of 2020 and goes to police in Aurora and Denver and offers information about these protesters. And the, the local police who partner with the FBI as part of this thing known as the Joint Terrorism Task Force or the JTTF introduce Mickey to the FBI. And that's how Mickey becomes an informant for the FBI. And what's, what's, what's particularly fascinating to me and, and very troubling, I would argue, is that the FBI, according to its own internal reports, 
opens its investigation and hires Mickey based solely on Mickey providing First Amendment protected activity as information. So, for example, Mickey described how these protesters were saying things like, we need to burn the city down. You know, obviously things that people are saying that are quite questionable and somewhat concerning, but nonetheless are protected by free speech rights. And the FBI used this information to then open this investigation, hire Mickey as an informant, and then insert him in the racial justice um, movement in Denver, which I think it's important to point out is something that the FBI director, Christopher Wray, has told Congress doesn't happen. He's, he's adamantly said that the FBI does not investigate ideology, does not investigate speech. And yet that's exactly what we saw in Denver, that the FBI hired this violent felon as an informant based solely on information that activists were saying incendiary things, and then used him to launch you know, a very intrusive investigation of the racial justice movement there. Right. And holy cow, I don't want my taxpayer money being used to hire the likes of Mickey. I mean, your podcast and your general theory got me to thinking about, well, do we want infiltrators? Do we want spies? Is it important to have informants? And I'd say, yes, with some limitations. And we can debate those limitations, but Mickey is so far out of the realm of the kind of guy that is trustworthy. He's just, he he is a, a compulsive liar, kind of like Tucker Carlson. For sure. You know, a lot, because my work over the years has been so critical of, of informants, I'm often asked, you know, do I think there shouldn't be informants? And, and I, and that's not what I think. I think there is a role for informants. The, I mean, the reason typically and traditionally that the any law enforcement agency would hire an informant is because that person is able to provide them with access to a criminal organization or some sort of crime that they could not get on their own. So an example of this would be, you know, let's say the FBI or you know, a police department is or is investigating organized crime and they end up catching a lower level mafioso stealing a car. And they say to him, look, we can charge you with this car theft, or you can become an informant and you can tell us what's going on inside the organization. And and that's kind of a, a more typical example of an informant. This is someone with a very unique access that law enforcement can't otherwise get. But what we've seen, at least what I've seen in, in you know the last two decades of reporting on the FBI, is that you, you more often see now informants kind of ginning up their own investigations as if they were kind of freelance agents. And and that's the case with Mickey, where he he realizes that he can make money by providing information on these racial justice activists. And so he goes to po- the police. And even though the reports that the FBI writes about it, you know, ridiculously say that Mickey did this out of a concern for, you know, American, sa- American safety and national security, the truth is that Mickey did it, like most informants, for money. He was incentivized for money, and that's why he moved forward with this. And I, I think the problem that we see in the FBI, and I think this also has kind of permeated some local law enforcement too, is that there aren't a whole lot of safeguards in place to make sure that informants aren't creating the very crimes that they're supposed to be looking for because they're incentivized by that money. So, for example, someone like Mickey goes to the FBI, gets hired, if Mickey were to spend the next few days and weeks going to protests and coming back to his FBI handlers and saying, you know what, everyone's peaceful, didn't see any crimes happening, everything's fine. He doesn't stay on the payroll, right? And so there's a direct incentive for an informant like Mickey 
to encourage violence, to encourage people to get involved in crimes, because he knows that's how he's going to keep getting paid. And it creates this very perverse incentive that I don't think most law enforcement agencies account for, certainly the FBI doesn't, where they can you know, create some sort of safeguard to prevent money as being a primary motivator from these informants then kind of creating crimes in order to make more money. And that's really where the, the, the problem is in the system, is that these informants have become so plentiful, right? And the FBI has more than 15,000 today. Your local law enforcement agency also has informants that they are then going out into communities looking for information. And in, in instances where they don't find any that's about crimes, they are encouraging crimes to happen. And, you know, that just that's the way kind of our federal law enforcement agencies have moved in the last two decades, that there's an over-reliance on informants. In many cases, informants are playing the role that agents had in previous generations, and that they're running sting operations that don't necessarily stop crimes, but then create them and create the illusion of stopping crimes. It just seems to me they have to filter the infiltrators better. And probably the ideal is somebody, as you described, I used to prosecute straight gangs, catch them on something else, and then have them be a good listener. Or maybe you want to implant the police officer who should be a good listener, but then to hire an ex-felon, give him up to 5K every two weeks and say, hey, go stir, stir things up. Mickey was the primary motivator. You do a great job, but he wasn't motivated just by money. He's got a screw loose. I have to ask you this for my son, Sam. He's age 20 and he's a big Marvel fan. Didn't Mickey visualize himself as the Punisher? Yeah, so so Mickey wore clothing that was often custom-made with patches, and the patches always included logos of the Punisher. He had a necklace with the Punisher logo. His ex-wife explains to me in the show that he was obsessed with the Punisher. He, you know, the, the obsession bordered on identity crisis. Mickey thought of himself as the Punisher. And, you know, what's interesting is that the Punisher is a, as a logo is something that has been adopted by right-wing um, Trump supporters. A number of the insurrectionists wore Punisher logo. Um, the the irony, of course, is that you know the the creator of the Punisher saw the Punisher as being a criticism of American policing. Right, that that the American justice system had failed and it needed this kind of antihero in its place. Whereas what you see now is the Punisher logo being adopted by pro-police demonstrators, by police officers even. And, you know, there there has been this kind of adoption of this icon, this logo. And and Mickey was was a part of that, was was someone who also identified with, with the Punisher logo and saw himself as the Punisher and to such a degree that he believed that he was kind of quasi-law enforcement. His ex-wife describes how you know she would go out with him and he would pretend to be a police officer he would stop drug dealers and talk to them and chase them as if he were a police officer and you know this was a guy who kind of saw himself as meeting out his own kind of brand of justice and ultimately it's the FBI that then gives him this power you know i think the line we use in the show is that you know mickey always wanted to be the punisher and you know who makes that possible it's it's the FBI and and that's really what happened in the summer of 2020 that the FBI gave Mickey such enormous power, the ability to go in and investigate and, and infiltrate this group and then essentially choose who he was going to try to set up and set up in crimes. Man, you know a lot about the Punisher. So does my son, Sam. Did you know this before you did this podcast? Were you a Marvel fan? 
No, I'm not a Marvel fan. I mean, most of my knowledge of the Punisher comes mainly from having researched it in relation to Mickey. Well, good research. Let me tell you my favorite episodes. They were all great, but you put out 10. Can I give you my favorites? Sure, please. Number three, chapter one, because it hooked me. It hooked me into the podcast, and I was glad to binge it. And thanks for those embargoed editions, including my second favorite, episode 10, because you really delivered. And holy cow, again and again, wait, there's more? So I won't give it all away, but I also liked you giving your commentary, and we're going to get right back to that. Episode 7 is my favorite. I'm going to save that for last, but back to episode 10. I like when you put on your star hat, hey, I'm Trevor, and how this is relevant is think about January 6th. How the hell could the FBI not see that coming when they're infiltrating little organizations in Denver and Colorado Springs? I loved when you got a little uh, editorial there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the one of the, the ideas that we really want people to take away from from Alphabet Boys, which is that, you know, during that summer, the FBI was spending an enormous amount of resources in an investigation like the one in Denver. And where else was that happening? I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that the FBI was pursuing similar investigations, similarly intrusive investigations in other cities. And at the same time, you know, leading up to January 6th, in, in the months leading up, in start, including that summer, there were incidents of right-wing violence, including uh, by groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, that I think you could argue, and I think I would argue, that the FBI turned a blind eye to. And to so the question we we try to raise is: to what extent did the FBI distract itself with racial justice, with the racial justice movement, at the expense of really seeing kind of the uptick in violence and organization that ultimately led to January sixth? Uh, because if you remember, the the FBI second in command told Congress right before January 6th, that the FBI was ready for any any problems, suggesting that they had intelligence that everything was going to be okay, everything was fine, they were, they were anticipating it. And, and they were proven very wrong, obviously. They were unable to anticipate it and unable to respond to it in an appropriate way. And I think the question is, like, was the FBI too focused on the racial justice movement at the expense of recognizing this kind of rising tide of, of right-wing milita- militarism and violence? Right. And within the police department ranks, law enforcement ranks. That's why I go back to 2017. I mean, Trump tried to get uh, the police to realize you're at war and I'm your leader and these other people hate you. They're Antifa, they're everything else. And I saw a lot of good cops, like I know a lot of police, and they became MAGA supporters. Didn't seem rational to me. But I think Trump would not have gone through without January 6th without thinking, hey, the police are going to be on my side too. They will melt in with the protesters. It's a little diluted, but do you know what I mean? Am I onto something? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a couple of factors. I mean, I think I think generally speaking, I mean, this is a generalization, but I, I think it's fair, which is that, you know, generally speaking, law enforcement tends to attract people who fall more on the conservative side of the political spectrum than the liberal side, just as a general rule. That doesn't yes. say there aren't liberal cops, but you know, as a general rule, I think more police officers, at least ones that I've met, including FBI agents, tend to be more conservative than perhaps other industries, if you will. And then at the same time, I think you know a lot of the rhetoric that came out of 
the summer of 2020 that we were discussing earlier, the idea that, you know, Antifa as a terrorist organization and, and really whipping up this idea that these demonstrations will turn violent really enabled police to maybe accept, you know, some of their predispos- predisposed biases and and maybe justify a more violent response by law enforcement that in, in cities like Portland and Denver then resulted in something of an arms race where protesters are coming out in, uh, you know, homemade body armor and with shields. And, and I think that just kind of the, the rhetoric was a big part of it. But I think, you know, obviously, you know, you see this with, you know, Trump, you see this with um, I live in Florida. I, I see this with Governor DeSantis, you know, courting law enforcement, right. not only kind of as a, as a political measure, but, you know, to, to some extent, you know, as a, as a base. And, uh, you know, and I, I do think that that is one thing to be cognizant of. I mean, I think the other part of this that makes this kind of remarkably funny in some ways is that, you know, Jim Jordan has this subcommittee on the House now where he's trying to make an argument that the FBI is somehow uh, targeting specifically right wing groups and is discriminatory against right wing groups as, as you know, as if the FBI is a bunch of liberals, liberal Hillary lovers who are just going after right wing groups. Right. Like it could be you could be farther from the truth, but that's kind of the rhetoric that we have now. Um, but I but I, I agree. I mean, I think one of the concerning things I saw come out of the summer of 2020 and you saw this in Portland, for example, there were instances where the police appeared to allow Oath Keepers to, you know, rough up protesters as if they were kind of a proxy police force. I didn't see any of that in Denver. I mean, you were closer to it than I was, so there, there may have been some of that. But at the same time, I think you know, local police and then the FBI as well were perhaps more sympathetic to right-wing groups than they were to these left-wing groups. And I guess I should say maybe more willing to suspect violence and danger from these left-wing groups than they were from right-wing groups such as the Oath Keepers. That's just one example. I think Trump enjoys divisiveness. He really came on the scene big time in 2015. Some of these problems preceded him. And frankly, let me just uh, bounce off of you. My theory that uh, the left wing caused a bit of the problem. You go to Ferguson and Michael Brown and the cop, I think his name was Darren Wilson, and that was probably a justifiable shooting. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but that Michael Brown was a big guy. He'd already demonstrated considerable violence. He was coming back at the cop who was already injured, and the cop shot him. And then again, Trayvon Martin wasn't the greatest case, and George Zimmerman's probably a jerk, but that verdict was predictable too, okay? But then you get to, uh, you know, George Floyd, and you get to some recent police excesses. But but do you see what I mean? Uh, the Black Lives Matter, that wasn't the best case. Elijah McClain's a much better case of police doing going way too far. Do you do you understand what I'm saying? For sure. You know, I I think I mean every case is every case is different. And some of the cases that have become better known are um maybe less problematic than others. I mean, I think, as you mentioned, Elijah McClain's was definitely one of the more egregious ones, that this was a young man who was not committing a crime, was stopped by three police officers, and then injected with a lethal dose of ketamine, right? Like, no one deserves that. And and I, I think, you know, I, but at the same time, I think, you know, one of the points we try to make is in, in Alphabet Boys is we're not making any judgment calls on on which were the most significant. I mean, we, we talk about Elijah McClain because that's really what enraged a lot of the, the local protesters there. Uh, but I think it's also point important to point out that, you know, we're not saying that the racial justice movement 
was perfect in the sense that there wasn't violence on their own uh, as part of this. And I, I guess what I want to kind of talk about is like, you know, one of the things we, we describe is that when the racial justice movement in Denver in that, that final week of August 2020, when things are getting really heated, you'd mentioned District 1, where there were these attacks on the police department. You know, there were specific instances where, you know, the, the, the racial justice demonstrators had kind of gotten into a, like a mob mentality. We describe one example where a local reporter is doing a live shot and is really being intimidated by these racial justice demonstrators who kind of just see her as part of the establishment, right? And they're there to fight the establishment. And I'm, I'm not saying this to undermine the racial justice movement. I mean, these are all people who are acting individually. It's not like the racial justice movement had one central organizer or organizing group. These were all people who are, you know, out there on their own. And there were some people who behaved inappropriately and even badly and violently. And we saw examples of that in Denver and in other cities. And so I, I, I would say that, you know, you can't make the argument that there were no, you know, there was no violence as a result of the racial justice movement. There were. There were people who, who acted badly and committed crimes. But as a whole, you know, these demonstrations were overwhelmingly peaceful. And, you know, the idea that the FBI would be trying to insert an informant in order to find out what's going on within these groups is really, in my opinion, beyond the pale, because there was nothing to suggest that this was some sort of criminal conspiracy that the FBI needed to infiltrate. If anything, if anyone was committing crimes, they're crimes of opportunity, people getting out of hand, people getting violent unnecessarily, and people should be prosecuted for that. But I think that's different than what the FBI did, which was to go in and try to um, gin up conspiracies, including you know conspiracy that didn't work out, but a conspiracy nonetheless to assassinate Colorado's attorney general. Right. I, I think the average Joe, and I'm just the average Craig, was not inclined to go protest over Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown. But Elijah McClain, that was different. George Floyd. And then they had that shooting down in Colorado Springs. I forget that uh, young man's name. Devon Shot Bailey, up. yeah. Yeah, and, and you covered that. My friend Mari Newman was the lawyer uh, who went down there. Uh that's a big chapter, chapter eight of your book, but I teased chapter seven, and you've been generous with your time. I was on the edge of my seat. My wife said, what are you listening to? I said, they're about to kill Phil Weiser. I mean, <laughs> I know Phil Weiser. I also know George Brockler, the DA at the time in the 18th JD, and for a while there, it was, who does this guy want to kill, the DA or the AG? You go ahead and tell that story, because... Do you agree that episode seven is fantastic when you're riding around Denver on an, uh, you know, it didn't happen. That makes it good too, but it still was unbelievable sound that you got. Yeah, it's compelling. So the, the backstory of this is that um, Mickey Windecker, the informant, tried to set up two black activists, Zeb Hall and Bryce Shelby, in a plot to assassinate Phil Weiser. And this was a very nebulous plot. They had Phil Weiser's home address, but they didn't really have any specific plans. And and Mickey says, I know a guy, you know, we called him a, you know, a, a, an outlaw biker who can make it make it happen. He can help you facilitate this assassination plot. And Zeb Hall, one of the activists, backs out immediately. He's like, I don't want anything to do with this. But Bryce Shelby kind of goes along with it. And so they they meet at at uh, at a TGI Fridays for lunch, and Mickey introduces this undercover agent, FBI agent, going by the nickname Red. And Red claims to be a former Special Forces officer and claims that he can facilitate, you know, whatever this guy needs in order to complete what he wants to do, which is 
purportedly this plot to assassinate Phil Weiser, the attorney general. But Bryce Shelby, the person who is targeted in this, it's clear that he really doesn't know much about Phil Weiser. He he keeps referring to Phil Weiser as the DA, and then he gets corrected. And he's like, oh, oh the, the AG. And so, you know, this person that the government is trying to set up in this case to assassinate the attorney general, it's clear that he doesn't really know much about Phil Weiser. And in fact, the undercover agent at one point asks him, like, what do you know about this Phil Weiser guy? And he gets like almost everything wrong about Phil Weiser: his, his age, his number of the number of children he has, uh, the, his, his how long he's been in office. So it's clear that this person doesn't really know who he's apparently going right. To assassinate. But his motive was he thought that Weiser was the prosecutor of the people who had shut down I two twenty five and those kind of crimes. That's right. He had mixed up the DA with the AG in the sense that he was mad at Weiser in his mind because Weiser was prosecuting these demonstrators, which obviously, as you know, wasn't the case. It was the district attorney's office that would have jurisdiction over that, not not the AG. But he doesn't know that. And yet the FBI pushes him forward. And, and what's interesting about the tape that I think you're getting at is, you know, among the recordings we received was uh, or were able to obtain was uh, undercover recordings from the car driven by the FBI undercover agent with Bryce Shelby in the passenger seat as they drive to Phil Weiser's home and they're discussing how they might do it. You know, what, how, how, how this would look like. Would they kill Phil Weiser when he, you know, pulls out of his garage or he gets home from work? Ultimately, I think it's worth pointing out that Bryce Shelby backs away and, and doesn't, it basically ghosts Red, the undercover agent, and Mickey and doesn't move forward in the plot and was never charged with a crime. So I think that's important to point out that, that, that Bryce Shelby was never charged with this crime. Ultimately, though, his guns were taken away for a year under Colorado's red flag law using the evidence from this um, this sting operation. But I, I think the important thing to point out is that as troubling as it is that they even had this conversation that it, that showed the ambitions of the FBI in putting together a plot that would then grab national headlines, right? If someone did go forward with this and was arrested in Colorado, that would be a national story, right? Two black activists in the racial justice movement arrested and charged with a plot to assassinate Colorado's attorney general. It's a huge story. That didn't happen, but that's what the FBI was aiming for. And I, I think what's concerning in that context is like, that is the exact type of crime that the Trump administration that year was trying to make it seem like was possible, right? That these Antifa activists are very dangerous and and you have to be on the lookout. And so, I, you know, the question I have, which is unanswered, is to what degree did the FBI pursue this kind of grand sting operation, this supposed plot to assassinate Phil Weiser, because there was the kind of political pressure to go after these racial justice activists that during the Trump administration. Well, pardon me if I'm not quite as favorably disposed toward this Bryce Shelby, because I thought he went pretty damn far, and I would not trust that guy. What do you think? I mean, to me, I know Red and Mickey kind of instigated things, but just like I, I talk about people being activated by MAGA, this guy was easily activated, and he was really talking about assassinating Phil Weiser, who he knew he had a family, even if he got the details wrong. He drove by the guy's house. You know what it sounded like when he was saying, I'm going to get him when he gets out of his car in his driveway? That's the way Alan Berg got assassinated, a big FBI failure not to stop that before it happened back in the day. Another Denver tragedy, June 18, 1984. But can you see how a guy like me just doesn't want to have dinner with Bryce Shelby just yet? 
I totally understand. And I, I'm not advocating uh, for that, certainly. I think, you know, Bryce says things and does things that I think are really hard to understand and I think would be reason to give law enforcement pause, right? He's having conversations in a way that I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk about killing an elected official. You're not going to have a ha- talk about that, but he does. And and so, the, you know, there certainly are, you know, questions about what his motivations were, how far he would have gone. What Bryce says, and this is in the show as well, is that Bryce says he was kind of curious and he was just playing the part. And these guys are coming off as mercenaries. Mickey seemed to be a mercenary. This guy seemed to be a mercenary and talking about killing this person. So he's kind of playing the part and going along with it. That's his, that's his excuse. And what, you know, the example that he gives is he tells Bryce, I'm sorry, Bryce tells Red and Mickey that the guns he has are illegal, even though that wasn't true. He bought them at a pawn shop. And so in, in his defense, and I'm just telling you what, what he says in the show, is that you know, he was basically making things up to kind of seem like a tough guy because he was playing this this tough guy talk. And, you know, you do see this in FBI undercover stings where, you know, I think there's a certain, like, this is a hum- human tendency, right? Like, we all tend to imitate the people in our social circle. Uh, I think people who maybe lack confidence that others have may be more likely to do that than others. And, and so in, in Bryce's case, what he says is, he got there. He was in, he was curious what what these guys were like. They're talking about this plot, and he's kind of just going along with it and talk, never intending to go forward with it. Um, that's what he says. He wasn't charged with a crime. Right. That said, that though, does, I, that does yeah. it does it pay off for you journalistically to be sympathetic to sources like him? Have you ever thought about that? Because, I mean, we're all prone to that. This guy provided you with great sound. He trusted you to tell this story. And so you don't want to come down too hard on him here or anywhere. I mean, I don't think that's fair. I mean, I don't think I would pull punches. I, I think, you know, I, I think we presented Bryce, Bryce's audio for the listeners to decide, to decide like whether, you know, this guy really was capable of the violence that the FBI suggested he might be. Um, that said, though, I mean, I think in looking at a lot of these cases, more often than not, when someone gets to that line, the case you hear about is the person crosses that line. Bryce didn't, you know? So, I mean, I, I, I think the things he says are despicable. You know, he's tra- talking about killing this person. But ultimately, the question is, and, and I think, you know, we present the tape in a way that I think we want the listener to decide is, you know, would he have done this were it not for the FBI making this possible? I want to know why Phil Weiser, why, why did he make that mistake? And... Uh, I'll confess my antennae go up because Phil Weiser's a prominent Jewish elected official. A lot of these hate groups love to target Jewish people because they control everything. It's that deep state narrative. And maybe that has nothing to do with it. Maybe you don't know, but surely you have examined these issues in your career. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know that anti-Semitism played a role in in Phil Weiser's specific case here. What happened in this case was that Mickey had encouraged them to get behind some sort of plot, and he threw out two ideas. One was to uh, bomb a courthouse, and the other was to, you know, assassinate the attorney general. At the same time, there was a demonstration in Denver where an activist, trying to be provocative started reading out the the home addresses of a number of elected officials in the Denver area. And Bryce was there and he wrote them down. And so as a result, Bryce had the attorney general's home address from this demonstrator who who read it aloud. And that 
kind of became the the genesis for the plot. I don't think it was anything more than that. I mean, if there, if, if anti-Semitism was a, a factor, it was not one that I came across. I think it was more that Bryce was encouraged by Mickey, had confused the attorney general as being responsible for the prosecutions of activists and, you know, was willing to move forward in that plot, you know, to the degree he did um, as a result of that. We never met each other before this call, although I feel like I know you from the podcast, but I take note of your name. Aronson could be probably a Jewish last name. Trevor sounds kind of like Scottish. Well, it's kind of like me, Silverman. And I don't know why my parents gave me the name Craig, but I'm a proud Jewish guy. I wear it on my sleeve. And uh, I took note that you covered a case that caught my attention a lot the Tsarnaev brothers and what they did to Jewish people in the Boston area. So I just threw a lot out, but I want to hear about the Tsarnaev case before you go. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, as as described, I, I am Jewish. My father is Jewish, and and my mother is um, Irish and um, Scottish, I believe. Uh, so that's where you get the Trevor Aaron. Well, at least and, you and, have a good explanation. Both <laughs> my parents were Jewish. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, the, so the Sernayev case, like to the extent that that you know, I've reported on it. You know, one of the things that we looked at in the Sernayev case was and this is going back a number of years now, with 2013. These are um, the Boston bombing brothers. The, the Boston one bombers. Of the, one of them on death row still, right? The other guy killed. The other was killed during the during the aftermath right. of the bombing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so the FBI was was re- referred. Uh, by the FSB, Russia's uh, intelligence agency, they had warned the the FBI about the Sarnayev, uh, Tomlin Sarnayev, the older brother, and that that sparked um, an investigation in Boston. Um, the F- the FSB, Russia, was referring based on um, Tomlin Sarnayev's travel to Dagestan in in um, in Russia, and a- as a result, the FBI investigated Tomlin Sarnayev. There's questions about whether they. Uh, tried to recruit him as an informant, but either way had ultimately decided that he wasn't a threat and closed what's called an assessment, which is a a, a threat assessment or, or limited investigation intended to discern whether someone is a threat and, um, and closed that investigation. And what's interesting to me is that as they were closing that investigation, they were pursuing a sting operation against this guy named Reswan Ferdows, who had significant mental mental problems and did not have any connections to terrorism and did not have um, really the capacity to commit terrorism. And the FBI enabled this crazy idea he had, which was to fly a drone laden with grenades into the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. And they provided him with the drone. They provided him with the grenades. And then when he accepted possession of it, they arrest him and say, look at the terrorists we've caught. And I, and I think the, the, the issue that I, I raised back in 2013 following the Boston Marathon bombings was, was to what extent the FBI was distracted by the sting operation to kind of make a case against someone who needed the FBI to facilitate every step of this, of this bombing while then being distracted to such a degree that they let Tomlin Sarnayev, a potential threat, go to such an extent that he bombs the Boston Marathon bomb. Right, but before he did that, didn't he kill three Jewish guys in a house in Boston, and he got away with that too, and he became an informant? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting parts of that wrong. Yeah, I don't believe he ever became an informant that I know of, but yeah, he he and two others, uh, another another uh, um, person from Russia, a friend, had been involved where they killed three people in, in what was supposed to be a drug transaction, um, and they, they'd robbed them. And so then the, the person that they, it was this unsolved murder in the Boston area. 
And then the FBI, after the Boston Marathon bombings, came to Orlando to find this other man whose, whose name escapes me at the moment. I'm sorry. I would have prepped that. I know this would come up. No, no, um, that's uh, all right. And he, didn't uh, he kill himself or he got he, killed somehow? He was, he was shot by an FBI agent. You know, the allegation was that he had charged at the FBI agent and the FBI agent shot him. Um, but it, it became like a very interesting case and in, in questions of what, you know, what signals the FBI missed, um, given that, you know, the FB, FSB had reported Tomerlin, that he was also involved in this uh, very gruesome and in, in very gruesome murder at the time. And so, you know, I, I think, I guess the parallel I draw just in, in a very big, in general way, is like, you know, what we saw with Tomerlin Sarnayev was that the FBI had an opportunity to pay closer attention to him, but didn't while being distracted with other cases. And, you know, if you look at 2020, you know, to, uh, to what degree was the FBI distracted by paying such close attention to the racial justice movement that they maybe weren't paying enough attention to the kind of rising tide of right-wing violence that we saw on January 6th. Right. And how much of it is political? How much of it is still today? I have my suspicions that we've been infiltrated all over the place in Washington, in the halls of government, and it's really distressing. Am I? And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I just see the actions of Putin and Trump and uh, others, and I wonder what's going on. I'm glad a guy like you is out there. What will we learn uh, on the coming episodes of Alphabet Boys? Yeah, so episode five is out now. The next episode, episode six, starts uh, Tuesday, and then there's a new episode every Tuesday through April 4th. Uh, But starting next week is really where we get into the plot to assassinate Attorney General Phil Weiser, or the supposed plot to do it. And so episodes six and seven, which are coming out over the next two weeks, really get into that. And then later in the show, in episode eight, we reveal how the, the Denver investigation prompted a second investigation in Colorado Springs where very similar tactics were used. In that case, an undercover cop infiltrated the left-wing activist groups and then tried to set up individual activists in gun-running conspiracies. Um, and so what's, what's, what's fascinating to me about that example is that it really suggests that what happened in Denver wasn't anomalous, that this was happening elsewhere. It happened at least in Colorado Springs. And so I think it's not unreasonable to think that um, you know, this happened elsewhere. And so then, then obviously, at the end of the show, we talk about how Mickey uh, was able to set up Zeb in a, in, a, in a gun charge. Zeb is one of the primary activists we follow in the, in the case. And then ultimately, you know, we contact Mickey in the final episode of the, of the, sh- of the show. Okay, I'm going to give it up because you almost spoiled everything, but (laughs) you get Mickey. And you had so much sound of him from social media and otherwise. The sound is extraordinary. So is the storytelling. But at the end of every episode, you say, one, you'd like people to listen. Word of mouth is the best way. You have my highest recommendation. This is thought-provoking. You are a gutsy guy. And uh, what's the best way for people to consume your product what do you want them to do out there? Yeah, so you can follow me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Trevor Aronson is the username. Uh, but more importantly, you know, we want to. We believe Alphabet Boys is an important story, and we like to think it's well told. And so, what we're hoping to do is just push people to the podcast. So, if you go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the iHeartRadio app, uh, type in Alphabet Boys, you'll see the cover. Uh, it's a hearse with FBI on the side. Um, and Alphabet Boys at the top. I mean, we're just encouraging as many people to listen um, as they can. And if you like the show, we hope you'll you'll tell your friends and family. 
I have told my family, I'm telling all my friends and everybody who listens to this podcast. Really appreciate your time, Trevor. Stay safe and thanks for telling this really important Colorado story. Thanks, Craig. I really appreciate your time. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. All right, let's do this then, Troubadour. While we have the dramatic tension, are you ready? I'm ready. We had a bite, and it's not like us, and I'm willing to accept your apology. As am I. Your song references an apology in the second line, Deep Down. It's a classic Dave Gunders tune, Love It. And I think you wrote about yourself needing to apologize. Well, I don't remember that, but you could refresh my mind. I've told lies. Guess I should apologize. That's what the song says. Right. Yeah. See, I know your inventory. Why don't you tell everybody what our dispute was about? Deep down, this is the show for drama because there's a lot of dramatic tension in Alphabet Boys. What a great interview with... Trevor Aronson, and uh, yet uh, I've been looking forward to our competition. I mean, discussion today. And uh, why don't you explain to everybody? I'd like to hear it out of your own mouth. Well, let's start off easy. Do you want to start with the fight or the good stuff? I'm, I'm your guest. 
I'm following. I'm no, following you're not a my, guest. I'm and follow, maybe that's what happened because before our quarrel, I said you've been neglecting the show because you're in the thralls of completing your own album. A little self-absorbed. I normally got a song from you by Tuesday or Wednesday of each week. Again, it was Thursday late, and we did not have a song. But you came up with one deep down, so I give you credit for that. It's perfect for this week, especially because you need to apologize. And because we have a story about infiltrating a group going deep down undercover. Get it? Anyway, I do but uh, do you remember? Do you remember all that happened before we had our fight? Yeah. How much do you want to get into? Yeah. It? Go ahead. Your version. Well, of we had that. a nice walk. I was excited, having uh, just completed some. I'm in the middle of mixing songs, so I was excited to get my buddy to listen. And I shouldn't have asked for ten minutes. I know that's too much for you for you to actually focus ten minutes of your time, your valuable time, on something I just completed. And I may have twisted your arm a little bit. So it might have been that you were a little bit, you had a little antsy sitting in my car. I played three songs for you. You I were on your been. phone the I, whole time. The I was whole time. on my phone. Okay. <laughs> you were on your phone taking notes. You were probably betting, but you said you were taking notes. And then in the middle of the third song, I was like, dude, how about you just listen, forget the notes. You're in your head. Music is a, it's, it's something that you feel in your heart. I felt like you were critiquing before even experiencing the music. But I will say, we're not going to have any more car dates where I play my music for you. Okay, okay let's go back a little bit. Yeah. And started on Monday I will night. complete my CDs, and I know you like my music, and you've always been great. I'll complete them. I won't ask for any critique, and I shouldn't. And you can do with it as you will. But that was the last time I'm going to come excited and, and play my music for Craig Silverman, thinking that he actually might be excited to listen. Okay, here's my version of events. You ready? Go. Monday night, we have our walk. Nuggets are playing in Houston. Might be meaningless to an average fan, but I'm no average Nuggets fan. Jokic is going for his 100th triple-double. And uh, I needed to watch, and it starts at 6.10. It was already 6.05. You said, you need to listen to a song in my vehicle. And I did, as a favor to you. And then your wife came out. She wondered, well, I, I was in a rush. Why am I sitting in your car at the end of a walk? What are we doing? But it was a good song about the angel, the devil. I will not give it up. And I listened, and I gave my commentaries. I went home. I missed most of the first quarter. Thank you very much. But it's okay. You're a good pal. So you wanted me to hear three more songs. Three. I'm not a musical genius. Far from it. But I have good constructive criticisms. I could be like that Rick Rubin guy if given an opportunity. But I can't absorb three straight without taking some notes. Now, Donald Trump got mad when he had lawyers who took notes that's my habit. And I didn't have a yellow pad there. I'm sorry. I had my phone and I was taking notes. I can email them to you. You thought I was betting on games, which I wasn't. I had my games in. I told you Nuggets were not playing Thursday night. I was in no rush, but I just needed to take the time. After the first song, I said, you want to hear my commentary? No, let's hear two more. 
Well, I don't have that capacity. I have to make notes. And then the third song, you were mad because you, I thought you were going to throw my phone away. I saw where a performer, I'd send you the article, somebody was on stage with a phone instead of interacting, filming, and he took the phone, threw it in the crowd. That's what I thought you were doing. So really, I will accept your apology, but I look beyond the behavior because it's technology. You didn't like the way I was taking notes. I don't like when people are on their phone and I'm trying to engage with them. I could think of a couple guys I used to do radio with who did that nonstop and you want their full attention, but what you don't realize is you had my full attention. I'm taking notes, but maybe you're insecure. Maybe you don't like technology. You don't like the fact that artificial intelligence is going to put musicians and lawyers out of business. I don't like it either, but I don't react by telling somebody how to listen. If you read my column, I'm not going to say you're too slow or you can't take notes. And your your song today, by the way, thanks again. I just wrote a column about perjury, and your song is I Told Lies. I think that's serendipity, okay? So my sister the other night, during our conversation, I brought up ChatGPT again, and I peppered you with it today. Chat GPT. Yes. And, and well, deep down, those. Troubadour, yep. I think I think this is what's bothering you, technology and the fear that you are obsolete, which is true. All right. Well, don't make excuses for me. I can do that myself. Go ahead. Your but, turn. But no, and no, I appreciate it. I, I, su- I think we should submit. We've each given our side, our version. But you were let's, wrong, factually. Let, let's submit. Can let's you do want to see the notes? Our, Let's submit to your listenership and let people weigh in. All I can say is I've learned my lesson. I shouldn't have asked this of you. But you one know, at a time. One, Maybe one at one, a time. There are certain things I really shouldn't ask of you. If I okay? said somebody, why don't you listen to three of my podcasts and let me know. And don't take any notes. God forbid any notes. Okay, let's talk something phenomenal. Okay, let's go. We've seen two phenomenal things. We haven't talked about it yet. The gulls, the gulls of the Denver Tech Center. Tell everybody what we've been saying. And if I didn't have a witness, I wouldn't believe it. Remarkable myself. natural phenomenon and exciting. And I think, Craig, you were the first one to notice. But flocks, flocks of gulls. And I'm t- we're talking, at first we thought we were like hundreds. Then we were thousands. We think maybe they came from Cherry Creek Reservoir. Although I've been on Cherry Creek Reservoir. I haven't seen those gulls. But they... They were flying in a in a southwesterly direction at sunset, and every night, just thousands know. upon thousands. Yes. it looks like from Cherry Creek Reservoir toward Chatfield. Right, we don't know. Right, but then they get caught up in what did you call it? A thermal? Did you make right. that and up? And then, and then, in the midst of this, we look ahead, and it was almost like you'd see a funnel, like a um, you know, like a like a tornado. It was going in a hor- in a uh, counterclockwise direction. The birds were going counterclockwise in a rather tight kind of funnel and rising on this thermal. Hundreds and hundreds of birds in a funnel going up. I've never seen it before. I've never seen anything like it. And then, right before our fight, maybe we've made up here a touch fist. Okay, we have. I accept your apology. Um, don't, don't hold your breath on that. 
I think your lack of rebuttal to my fact. Anyway. My stubbornness I was being is, is equal friend. to yours. I and then say. you said <laughs> something like, you get back in there and listen. No. <laughs> Do you even remember <laughs> the amazing thing that happened right before we had a fight? Uh, I mean, within we were five enjoy- minutes. enjoying ourselves watching no, this. No, no. What, what did we talk about? Another natural phenomenon. Oh. Oh. the Yeah. The, the curvy trees. You tell them. Okay, we saw curvy trees in our neighborhood. We always wondered, why would a spruce tree be bent like that? We always look around, what in nature caused this phenomenon? And there was the homeowner. You said, no, don't bother him. And I, of course, said, sir. And he came over and he explained it. Do you remember what he said? Yes, I do. And uh, I'm not sure he, he had a very good explanation. He said it had some kind of, he said it was genetic to the tree. It was some oddity. Like a human erection Peyronie's disease. Yeah, I didn't want to bring that up. But he brought it up. Yeah, you, you never know. And he had tried to save that tree. Why? Because it was his tree. And he had pulleys and whatnot. Yeah, and he liked the he had tree. Cables. Yeah, he liked the tree. It, was, it is an interesting phenomenon. And then you, Craig, and I, I think it's great. You followed, followed up and you found a forest in Poland that has the same phenomenon. With well, after he gave trees. me the tip that there's a, right. it's called the Crooked Forest. And what the great, what is it, great, Grecian or G-R-Y? I don't anyway, speak Polish. Anyway, and even then I read, you know, I read the articles that you, that you brought uh, to your phone. Yeah, they still don't know what, what it, right. they, it was, it's, it's unexplained. There are theories, but it's unexplained. We're going to go over there and see. It's going to be remote, and I think we get to deduct it as part of the podcast. I think there's one in Germany and one in Poland. The one is very old. The other got planted in 1930, and there are all these explanations about why it happened. The crooked forest. Deep down, what do you believe? On the trees? Yes. I don't know. I can't. Uh, I can't. I can't. I, it's some f- natural phenomenon. I don't. I don't really think it's a genetic thing that a tree has where it grows weird. We expect trees, like all plants, they grow to, or at least yeah, all trees, humans, they grow to the sun. I mean, photosynthesis. Right, but is, some humans grow weird. But trees. That's how they. That's how they get their nutrition is growing towards the light. So when you see a tree growing horizontal, and then later reaching up to the sky, but re, but going horizontal for its first younger years something's causing that i don't know maybe there's a botanist an arborealist it's got to be something that, in their roots right normally when that happens you expect that a tree will do that when it's being choked out of the light by another a bigger tree or a rock or something but right? there's no such thing right there there's the other clue we is, could see the these, other clue though is there are the different kinds of trees on the same property it exhibit the same characteristic. We did see, although not to that extent. Right. But it's a mystery. Again, let's submit to your listenership. Maybe someone will, will know. We will. We will. Absolutely. But deep down, it's one of my favorite songs. We're talking about roots going deep down. What inspired your song, sir? Um, let's see. <laughs> I remember you were trying to impress a woman. As well, oh yeah, the song is a young, he's a young man. He is trying to impress a woman. Yeah, and he's- uh, And he's I, committing crimes. Yes. That's why it's perfect for a very compelling episode. I think he did a marvelous song 
uh, with Deep Down, and those other four, they have potential. But maybe we'll listen in a different venue next time. I have 15 more, which I, which, which you'll hear on a completed CD, and you can, you can listen, you can be on your phone, and I promise not to be upset. Okay. What if somebody listens to music on their phone? It's 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 terrible. It's like it's like taking your articles, okay? It's like me t- taking one of your articles, printing it out, and then posting it on a tree 300 yards away and saying, "Oh, looks pretty good." So you don't like people listening to your music on a phone even with earbuds in? You don't think Well, they it- don't hear it. Uh, how how is your music to be heard? Well, it's not everybody can listen to it. When you said on your phone, I thought you were talking I'd, about. I'd say ninety nine percent of the people yes. listening to the podcast are listening. No, on you're a absolutely smartphone, right. Listening to yeah. deep down. No, no, I no. think it sounds good. I w- I was thinking about the little phone speaker, which is a cheesy little thing. No, you're talking about buds, right? See, yes, I don't like. Airbuds, I don't even like earbuds, Bluetooth. but I know. See, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's the source of this problem. You just don't like technology. Well, people are going to be listening to the songs. The people can listen however they want. You're a I dinosaur. What kind of old stereo do you have? I'm happy to be a dinosaur, and I don't care how what they What year is this stereo you have downstairs that you listen to music on? Let's see that Fisher? 40 years old? Yeah. See? But part of it was given to me by an architect. An iPhone I'm... is better than that. Yeah. Well. You just can't I... understand that a guy could take notes on his phone. You know, Craig, our friendship will, will survive this and, <laughs> this and many other I know. Little, little spats to come. I'm just glad I got a buddy to walk with. I could not agree more. The other thing that I think may be bothering you, you need a dog. That's true. Right. And, and walking my dog and I go pulling on you, I think that gets you going. Yeah. And what got you going yesterday, too? What got you going? I told you earlier, yeah. I said I had too much coffee. Oh, Didn't okay. I How much you? coffee? Tell people. Too, it's I, crazy. I had an Allenberg amounts of coffee. Two he, pots of coffee. Well, I drink a lot of coffee. All right. I like coffee. So it's. I like Dave Gunner. So I think we've He's established. We've established that you have, you were in deep an altered down, an altered state. Deep down, I like you, Troubadour Dave Gunders. Let's listen don't, to your Don't song. let it out. Thank Shabbat you. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. I guess I should apologize But I didn't know That old fishing hole Sitting out in private land Could you give me back my pole And if you do You'll never see me again I'm dreaming of that trout Frying in the pan That's why I'm telling you My friend Deep down I'm glad I did it Deep down I'm glad I did it I took a little time from school I kinda like to bend the rules Deep down When I'm I do anything to get a little closer for a better view. Cause 
pandemic and otherwise a lot of people have so much affection for their pets that must come up all the time what's going to happen to scruffy what can you tell us about that michael bailey what you can do is create a pet trust in colorado you put money into trust and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog and it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years whichever is shorter and then when the time frame for the trust is up you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or i have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals how cool is that you can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com and there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me.
okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, that was a good show. Dave Gunder, thank you for Deep Down. Deep Down, our friendship is great. Although you can get really worked up if you don't like technology and if you're passionate about your own baby, which is your artistry. And God knows I love Dave Gunder's music and the man behind it. I like Trevor Aronson because he came on my show. And I like anybody who's willing to expose the truth. And that's what he does with Alphabet Boys. I hope you like Alphabet Boys. It gets my thumbs up, and I hope you love my show. As Trevor Aronson tells his podcast audience, the best way to expand the audience is word of mouth, friend to friend. Tell your friends, hey, listen to Craig. You know, you can put them up to three times speed on Spotify, and then I talk really pretty fast, but it makes me sound smart. Thank you for listening. Until next week, have a great one. Bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.